So Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be tonight. So this is an interesting time of year, right? So um, if you uh, if you know, maybe more of the high schoolers are probably aware, or maybe if you uh, maybe if you have siblings that are kind of that are older than you, maybe you're aware. But this is the time of year where people are like celebrating graduation, right? You have people who are graduating from high school. Uh, this past Sunday, we were able to uh, recognize a lot of our graduating seniors, and and for all of them, right? For all of our, the students that we have, and just all students in general who are graduating from high school, right? This is a massive turning point in their lives. This is a massive turning point in their lives, a massive turning point in their parents' lives, right? It's it's a huge shifting from one season to another. For some, it's the first time that they will ever be living uh, away from home. For others, it's the first time that it's a swift introduction into the workforce, right? But most will begin to understand what adulthood is like, right? This is kind of like what that season looks like. And this is a a massive transition for for students, for parents. Um, And perhaps, you know, like if you're a parent, right? If if you imagine being a parent, like this is the last kid to leave the house. Or maybe this is your first kid to, to graduate high school, whatever it may be. But like we come, and I want you to understand something, guys. It's like our life comes at us. In, a, in, in seasons. Does this make sense? Like, there's like, you have different seasons in life that bring with it different things. And whenever we encounter new seasons, it can be incredibly exciting or it can bring a ton of anxiety. Right? Whenever we go from one season to another, whenever we experience this change in the way our life is going, it can either bring, like, be super exciting or it can bring a lot of anxiety or sometimes even both. Whether it be getting married or, or the birth of a child or graduation or a new job or losing a job or losing a loved one, whatever it may be. See, change is never easy to wrestle with. Right? Some people, like even myself, like I'm the type of person where I, I enjoy change, but I acknowledge that change is, is, not, is often difficult. Right? It's still difficult to adjust when it comes, and it brings new priorities, new challenges, and new opportunities. What I've learned is this, is that in this season of change, whenever you're in the midst of a season of change, where whether you're kind of, maybe for some of you, you're going from 8th grade to ninth grade, or 12th grade to college, or, or whatever, maybe some of you, you're like, maybe it's even deeper than that. Maybe it's going from, okay, like, your parents were together, but now they're not, or, or maybe it was like this weird season of like, okay, your sibling is moving out, or, or maybe like there's this different, whatever it may be, when you come into these new seasons, what I've learned is this, is that what we place our faith in is brought to the spotlight. What these changes of seasons do, if, if nothing else, they expose what we place our faith in. And oftentimes what you'll find is that what you have thought you have placed your faith in is not what you have placed your faith in. One of the most sobering statistics that every youth pastor in, in the world is aware of is the statistics of how many high school graduates will leave the church after they have graduated high school. This is a statistic that is on my mind constantly. I can think of, student, I can think of students right now by name who are not in church after graduating from high school. I can think of them by name. A 2019 study published by Lifeway Research states the following, that the dropout rate for young adults accelerates with age. While 69% say that they were attending at age 17, that fell to 58% at the age of 18 and 40% at the age of 19. Once they reach their 20s, one in three 
will say that they are not, that they, one in three say they were attending church regularly twice a month or more. See, that, that by the time they get to their 20s, 33% are all that's left. And sadly, it isn't only young people leaving the church, uh, leaving, uh, leaving the nest. Uh, sorry, it's only young people leaving the nest that experience this disenchantment with leaving the church. One of the fastest growing groups of people in the United States uh, from a religious standpoint are people who have been coined as the nuns. And these are not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S. These are people who say that they have no religious affiliation. Approximately 80% of people that do not affiliate with any particular religion or, or, or religious group say that they were raised as a member of a particular, particular religion before shedding their religious beliefs later in life. And while there's several reasons for this, there's a lot of reasons why people leave the church, why, uh, especially like, as students grow, as they graduate high school, why they end up leaving the church. There's a lot of reasons for this. But I firmly believe that one of the greatest reasons for this trend is due to a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. I think what you have, honestly, if we're honest, is that the reason that students graduate and they leave the church is because they don't know what being a Christian is all about. They've grown up with a bunch of spiritual platitudes that they just repeat over and over again, and they don't mean anything. And then when they're forced to stand on their own, their faulty religion is exposed. We live in a time where there's a wealth of information available to us. Right? All of those weird questions that we had in that game. Like, you could look up the answers in a moment's notice. You have access, if you have a phone, you have access to a wealth of information. And here's the thing that's interesting. You can get self-professed experts that will come up on your For You page on TikTok or Instagram, and they will say whatever they want, and they say that they're an expert and, and all of these different things. And while access to information is great on one, in one sense, what you find is that there's a lot of access to bad information. There's a lot of access to things that people don't know what they're talking about. It's incredibly dangerous. Because we have a lot of people walking around today thinking they know what being a Christian is all about, when in fact they don't. Perhaps that's where you are in this room tonight. Thinking you have a great idea of what it means to be a Christian. But I would bet that you don't. Perhaps you feel like you have a pretty good understanding of what it means to be a Christian, right? You say, well, I believe these certain things about Jesus and the Bible. I go to church. I pray before I eat my meals. I, you know, and I hope that's ultimately going to be good enough to grant me eternal life. See, when it comes to systematic theology or, or what we believe to be true about God and what we believe to be true about our faith, right, there isn't exactly a book in the Bible where you can go to and say, hey, like, this has everything that we believe. But I will say that the book of Romans is very close. The book of Romans is pretty close. In the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, we have been laboring through this since the beginning of the school year. We've been laboring through this for, uh, since the beginning of the school year. For 11 chapters, Paul has been giving an in-depth explanation of the gospel and Christ's redeeming work on the cross. He labors for 11 chapters to explain the mystery, the beauty of how we are able to have a right relationship with God through Jesus. And at the end of these 11 chapters, he then goes on to express, here's the practical application of all that I have just told you. 
the practical application of all that I have just told you, now here's what you do with it. Chapter 12 marks a dramatic shift in the theme of what Paul is writing about. For the first 11 chapters, Paul has been informing, informing, explaining, explaining, and now he's going to say, okay, what do you do with this? What do you do with this? He went from explaining to gospel to now explaining the Christian's proper response to it. So we're going to just do two verses tonight. Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're going to see a few things tonight, but the first thing I want you to see is this, is the motivation for the Christian life. What is the motivation for the Christian life? That first verse, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And if you know me, you see that word, therefore, and you're okay, well, why is it therefore? What is, you know, he said, I'm going to make an appeal to you. The reason I'm going to give you this command is because of what I have just said. Well, what have we just said? What has he just said? Well, what has he been talking about for the, for the first 11 chapters? He's been talking about the gospel, right? Is somebody talking? Sorry, like, it's like, I'm hearing people talk. It's like throwing me off. What's up? Oh, is it up in the booth? Okay. All right. No, you're good, man. All right. All right, so he's been talking about the gospel, right? So on, because it is the, the gospel is the basis for what he's about to say, right? And he sums it up by saying this, right? He sums up the gospel with this term, the mercy of God. All right, and the beauty of the gospel can be summarized by saying that it is God's mercy to sinners, right? That the gospel can be summarized. These first 11 chapters, while it is so, all this depth and complexity, we can summarize it by saying the mercies of God. It is God's mercy towards sinful people. How beautiful to know that while the gospel can be complex when we deep dive into certain topics, it is also so preciously simple that it's just God's mercy to you and me. So God's mercy towards sinners is the motivation for the command that Paul is going to give. And this is drastically important because if you don't understand the gospel and the goodness of God towards you and towards me, then nothing else matters. You hear this? You hear me? If you don't understand the gospel, nothing else in your life matters. Nothing if you come here every Tuesday night, we have a great time, and we play a lot of games, and I give you some really good practical advice on how you should live your life, but you don't leave this place with a better understanding of how God has saved you, then I have failed you. This is the most important thing, and this is why our discipleship and everything that we do as Christians must flow from a proper understanding of what God has done to redeem his creation. If we miss this, if we miss the reason for Paul's command, then all we have is very moral people headed to hell. It doesn't matter, see, if you obey the command but it's not out of an overflow of your understanding of the gospel, then all you are is a very moral person. There's a lot of moral people that don't know Jesus. Do not, understand this, do not measure where you are with God based off how moral you are or how good of a person you are compared to other people. 
There are many people in churches every Sunday morning that think that they are Christians, but they are sorely mistaken. They're sorely mistaken because they don't know the gospel or they haven't been taught the gospel. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? So all of their good deeds, all of their good service, all of their things that they do in the community, even the songs they sing on Sunday mornings are done amiss because they do all of these things apart from a right relationship with Jesus. Understand this, even for you in this room, even if you're in here, we're singing these songs and you're raising your hands, if you are not right with Jesus, it doesn't matter. If you're not right with Christ, you might as well not sing it. Mark 16, 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. See, sadly, what's being proclaimed by many Christians, quote unquote, today is not the gospel. But it's a truncated version of the gospel. In 2005, a researcher named Christian Smith conducted a study. He conducted a study that was designed to take a closer look at the religious beliefs of teenagers and young adults. Now, teenagers and young adults in 2005 are the parents of today. Now, I'm not saying that what we're saying here is true about your parents. What I'm trying to say is this, is that the teenagers and young adults of 2005 are parents and adults of today who are then also raising people with their beliefs. He conducted over 3,000 interviews. He observed a drastic shift. In doing so, he observed a drastic shift in the way American religious people view Jesus Christ and a relationship with God. And he would later go on to give a name to this way of thinking, and he named it this, Christian Therapeutic Moralistic Deism. All right? A lot of big words there, but Christian Therapeutic Moralistic Deism. Now let's break that down. So Christian Smith's argument is that true biblical Christianity has been pushed out the door and it has been replaced by something that has the Christian label on it. It's been replaced by something that may smell Christian and look Christian, but ultimately when you get into it, you realize it's not. But what it is, is it's wrapped in Christian-y terms, but the intent and the purpose behind it is first and foremost therapeutic. I mean, it's therapy. It's, the whole purpose is to feel good about yourself. We want to feel good about ourselves, but it's also moralistic, meaning this, that in your efforts to feel good about yourself, you should make sure that you behave because there is a God, a deism, right? So the, so the Christianity that we're finding in most people today is not actual biblical Christianity, and here's the basic points of moralistic therapeutic deism. It's this, that one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Second point, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. You have thousands, if not millions of people holding to this view and calling themselves Christians. I want you to understand, that is not the gospel. That saves nobody. It saves nobody. 
This message cannot save. And we have thousands, if not millions of people, young and old, that have bought into a lie, and they are convinced. They're convinced. Please hear me. They are convinced. If you were to ask them, they were to say, no, absolutely. They are convinced that when they die, they will stand face to face with Jesus and enter into eternity with him. And they are wrong. It would be like this. I used this example the other night. It would be like all of us being in an airplane, and we have parachutes on, and some of us have on backpacks. And we all jump out of the airplane, fully convinced that we have parachutes, fully convinced that we're going to land safely. But many of us are deceived because what we have may look like a parachute, but it's not a parachute. Get it now. Because if you don't get it now, the chances, percentage-wise, the statistics show that if you don't get it now, you're very unlikely to get it when you're older. Do you have a backpack on or do you have a parachute on? Is your faith in Jesus, can your faith save you or is it a deception? The Americanized version of the gospel of Jesus sends just as many people to hell as any other false religion. Why do I mention this? Because the strength to follow the commands that we're going to get into here that Paul is saying, the strength to follow this commands comes from an indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which comes through a saving faith in the true gospel. And that's why Paul, for 11 chapters, has explained this in depth. That's why we did not skip chapters in going through this. That's why we explain this as much as we can. Understand, we're not saved by our knowledge. Right? We're not saved by how much we know. But, you have to ask yourself, is what you know actually true? All right, so now that we've seen the motivation, right, the motivation for the Christian life, now we need to see the second point. That is the aim of the Christian life. What is the Christian life all about? If you're a senior and you're going to graduate and you're going to go into your adult life, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, continuing on in verse 1, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, God's command to you and to me through the scriptures is to worship God. The Westminster Confession, or the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the, question, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Magnify God with your life. That is the purpose of every person in this room, is to magnify God with your life. Do everything as unto the Lord, Colossians 3.23. Do not overcomplicate this, guys. Don't overcomplicate it. Because so many times, so many times, I hear students and adults say, I don't know what God wants me to do with my life. Have you ever felt this before? I don't know what God wants me to do with my life, especially as you're about to graduate and you're, about to, you're on the precipice of your future. You're like, I don't know what God wants me to do. Let me simplify it for you. The Bible makes it very clear what you are to do with your life. People say, God, please tell me what you want me to do. And I want you to understand, guys, that it's not bad to pray that. It's not bad to ask God to tell you what he wants you to do. But let's be clear. God's already explicitly told us in his word is this, that we should glorify him by living a life of worship towards him. Now, here's the real question. is not, God, what do you want me to do? The real question is this. God, what do you want me to do with my life? No, sorry. Sorry, it's not that. It's this. It's, God, what job would allow me to glorify you the most? 
What relationship would allow me to glorify you the most? Understand this. If God's call on your life is to be a janitor, but you're like, man, I really want to be an, a, a missionary that goes to the jungle. But God's command on your life is to be a janitor. I want you to understand. And then if you say, no, I'm going to go be a missionary, and you go be a missionary, understand that God may still use you in your disobedience, but God would be more glorified in you being a janitor in his will than a missionary out of it. Don't think that a pastor is the job that you glorify God the most with. Sometimes, for me, it is. But don't think that a teacher glorifies God any less with their teaching than I do with my preaching. You feel me? God, what job would allow me to glorify you the most? What relationship would allow me to glorify you the most? The answer to that is simple. In many cases, God will not be glorified with, let's just be real, in an unequally yoked relationship. This is, come on, this is like, basic now many Christians would probably agree that we should worship God I don't think there's a Christian that I know of that would say no I don't think we need to worry about that many would also agree that this is the main purpose that we have breath in our lungs the reason we live is to glorify God to worship God however do we all know what Paul means when he says that we are to worship that we are to live our lives in a way that is worshiping God Notice when Paul's doing here, he's taking the phrase, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and he is saying that this is spiritual worship. This is your worship. So the definition of worship, what it means to worship, if we live for the purpose of worship, then the definition of worship is found in presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. We need to really understand what does it mean to present my life, my body, as a living sacrifice to God. Because if I don't do that right, then I'm not worshiping. What does a life of worship to God look like? Two things. One, daily surrender. Daily surrender. He says this, present your bodies. The imagery that Paul is giving here is to stand before another in order to serve them or or to offer oneself in service to another person. This is the exact same phrase that Paul uses earlier in Romans, in Romans chapter 6, where he says, Do not present your members to sin as, an instrument, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So don't present yourself to sin. Present yourself to God. Everyone listening to me in this room, everyone within the sound of my voice, hear me when I say this. If you are not presenting yourself to God, you are presenting yourself to something else. If you are not presenting your life daily to God, you are presenting your life to something or someone else. Romans 6, 16 and 17. Do you not know that if you you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? You see, we are natural-born worshipers, all of us. This is why you can go into the middle of the jungle with people who have had no contact with the outside world and they are worshiping something. If you're in the room and you're a missionary kid, you know this. All people do this. 
Why? Because it's what we naturally do. Everyone in this room worships something. You worship sports. You worship athletes. You worship celebrities. You worship, uh, parents often worship their kids, or husbands worship their wives, or wives worship their husbands. We worship our traditions. The list goes on and on and on. In addition to this, surrender and offering of our allegiance, it is important to understand that we do not simply offer God part of us and then we keep the rest for ourselves. You understand me? You hear me? Presenting your body as a living sacrifice, presenting yourself to God does not mean that you present part of you and then you keep the rest. When Paul says that we are to present our bodies, it's best understood within the context of what he's saying. It's best understood as presenting your whole self, your body, your mind, your spirit, everything about you. To present our bodies is to present our whole selves for the service of God. The way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we dress, the things that we enjoy, the music we listen to ready to be used by him. We hold nothing back from him. 1 Corinthians 6.13 The body is not meant for sexual, immor- sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. We, your reason that you have a body is to glorify God with it. I'll give you a perfect example. When I got my license, when I got my license, and if you have your license or if you're about to get your license, you know what I mean or you're about to experience it. I wanted to drive anywhere. It didn't matter where. If my parents needed groceries, I was like, Mom, I'll go get it, right? Just let me drive. I'll go get the groceries. And what would happen oftentimes, my mom would give me a certain amount of money and say, okay, go get the groceries. All right, so I go and I get the groceries. Let's say she gave me 100 bucks, right? Now that I'm older, I understand 100 bucks is not going to get you much buying groceries, but just for the sake of understanding, let's just say 100 bucks. She gave me 100 bucks, and I go to the grocery store, and, I, and she gave me a list of these are the items that I have, want you to purchase, and I know 100 bucks will cover it. Let's say, okay, well, in this, there's bread and milk and eggs and all this stuff. Okay, but, you know, I really want, you know, I really want some, some Cokes, right? I really want some Coca-Colas. We don't like to get those because my parents drink Diet Coke, but I want regular Coke. So here's what I'll do. All right, she gave me 100 bucks. What I'll do is I'll leave off some of the items that she asked for so that I have enough money to get what I want. Right? Makes sense? I mean, I spent all $100. My parents would be furious with me. Why? Because they had a reason for why they asked for the things they asked for. Every dollar of what they gave me had a specific purpose. And if I wanted something extra for myself, I probably, if I would have asked, they would have probably given it to me. Understand this. Every breath you take, God has a specific purpose for. How many of them do you waste? How many of them do you waste? How many days have you wasted? How many days have I wasted? See, it doesn't matter if I mostly use the money for the right things. Look, partial obedience is full disobedience. Partially obeying God is the same as fully disobeying him. So don't get it twisted that you can come in here on Tuesday night, act super Christian, and then go to school and act like you were never here. You ain't fooling anybody. 
think a lot of times, and I'm not saying this necessarily to anyone specific in the room, but like I think a lot of times students think that adults were never young. Because some of the things people, the excuses people give me, I'm like, bro, come on. Like, look, I've used excuses. Like, look, if you're going to lie to me, at least be better at it. Here's the thing, you may fool me, but you're not fooling God. That's another theme that's all throughout Scripture. God does not ask for part of you. He demands all of you. And he, we have gotten really good at partially worshiping Jesus partially worshiping Jesus. Jesus speaks of the, Phar- uh, the Pharisees, and what does he say? He says that they're like whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed tombs, on the outside, they're ornate and they're beautiful, but on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones. For many people, Jesus is an accessory item. I'll give God this part of my life, but I won't give him this part of my life. I'll give God my worries and my concerns, but I won't give God my finances. I'll give God my hands, but I won't give God my heart. I'll worship God as long as it coincides with my aspirations and my goals. See, if this is the way that you approach worship to God, then I'm sorry, but you are yet to actually worship God correctly. In addition to this, the Greek tense of the verb is also suggesting something that is more than just a one-time dedication. The language that Paul uses here is to suggest that it is a complete, comprehensive, continual placing of one's whole self at God's disposal. It's not something that you do once, and then you're like, okay, yeah, it's like the flu shot. I got it. I'm good to go. It is a continual act, daily picking up our cross and following Jesus, as Luke says. My favorite author, A.W. Tozer, has a quote. It says, if you do not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship him one day a week. There is no such thing known in heaven as Sunday worship unless it is accompanied by Monday worship and Tuesday worship and Wednesday worship and so on. Listen, if you are not worshiping God with your life when you're not here, you're not worshiping God when you are here. Being a Christian is not something that is done on Sundays or Tuesdays, and when you're back home from college or when you're back with your friends at school or or, or whenever, and when people are looking, you change. If you and I are not living for Christ in the privacy of our homes or in the company of our friends, then chances are we're not truly living for him when we're in the presence of other people in church. Rather, what you'll find is that what's often the case is that we are living for the approval of other people to be seen as something that we know we're not. Be honest with yourself. You know you aren't, but you put on the front because you want people to think that you are in hopes that either one, they'll get off your back, or two, they may validate you in the way that you want to be validated, but you know you don't deserve This is not what God desires from his church. This is not what God desires from your life. This is not a proper response to the beauty of the gospel, and it is a daily surrender every moment of our lives for the glory of him who saved us. First thing we see, it's, what, it's a daily sacrifice. Or it's, or sorry, it's a daily, what, what is the first thing? Sorry, it's a daily surrender, excuse me. The second thing is this, it is not about you. He says, offer your bodies, what? As a living sacrifice. We've just seen that worship is a daily surrender to Christ, but Paul goes on further to say that we are to present ourselves for one purpose as a living sacrifice, right? This is Old Testament language. 
Old Testament language, right? In the Old Testament, they would constantly offer sacrifices. And they would offer different kinds of sacrifices for different kinds of things. But ultimately, you can boil down the sacrifices of the Old Testament to two kinds of sacrifices. Sacrifices of worship and sacrifices of atonement. So there were sacrifices that were offered for the purpose of forgiving sins, and there were, off- and there were sacrifices that were offered for the purpose of worshiping God. Now, when, now, we know this, that Jesus is our ultimate atoning sacrifice for our sins, correct? Correct? Okay. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, so that's been taken care of. God's wrath is satisfied and our sins are forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. So, if the sacrifice of atonement is taken care of, then the, sacrifice in, sorry, then the sacrifice in which we receive the blessing of being forgiven has been fulfilled in Jesus. Then what sacrifice is left? The sacrifice of worship for God's pleasure. What does this mean? It means this, that you and I do not worship with the intent of receiving anything in return. That is not why we worship. We do not worship because we will receive anything in return. We especially do not worship so that we'll be forgiven. We don't worship God so he will forgive us. No, 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 no. Don't think that highly of your worship. See, in the old covenant, the people of God offered sacrifices in order to receive forgiveness. It was done with the specific purpose in mind of what they would receive by doing it. Now, because Jesus has fulfilled this, everything that has to do with what you and I get out of it, Jesus has taken care of. So this should free you up to focus on how you please him. Because of this, to be a living sacrifice for God's glory means that we have to die to ourselves. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live for the glory of God. If worship is about God and his pleasure and his glory, then there's no room for my preferences. There's no room for my preferences. Everything that we do, we do for him. Please hear me, guys. You are not glorifying. You are not more Christian because you leave someplace and you criticize the music. Here's the question. Are the lyrics glorifying God? If so, put your preferences aside and be quiet. This is my own self, too. Why well, don't like the style? Well, that's good because it wasn't for you anyway. See, when we sing, we don't sing for ourselves. Worship is not about what you, and worship is not about what you got out of it. I was speaking with a student a few years ago, and we were talking about this idea of, like, why we're not fulfilled in worship and why we're not fulfilled in prayer. And I think ultimately it's this, is because we misunderstand the purpose of both of them. We misunderstand the purpose of both of them. I believe that the reason... I, I told him this. I believe that the reason that there's so much discontentment in our walk with Christ is because the things that are meant for us, we, do, we think we do for God, and the things that are meant for God, we think God does for us. And nowhere is this more, more obvious than in the way we pray and the way that we worship. I want you to understand something, guys. When you pray, that is God's gift to you. 
Prayer is how we lay our burdens at his feet. Prayer is how we are encouraged and we are rejuvenated. God has, God, prayer is God's blessing to us that we can approach him boldly and without fear. It is, it is, it is something that God has done for us. Understand this. And the reason that people, a lot of people don't understand this. They think that they have to pray a certain way for God to be, to, for God to be pleased with their prayers. But sometimes prayer is just going bruh, to God. And what happens is this, is that when you think that prayer is like, I have to hit this, I have to hit this, I have to use these words at that time, right? What happens is, is you pray and there's no fulfillment in it. There's no peace in it. There's no reassurance in it because you think it's something that's for God. Likewise, worship, we think is something that, oh, I have this euphoric experience. I receive this. I receive this. No, worship is for God. So what happens is you have people who are not fulfilled in their worship because they think it's about them. They're not fulfilled or satisfied in their prayer life because they think it's about him. We get it flipped. Let me encourage you in your prayer life. You want to have a more healthy and fulfilling and satisfying prayer life? Just be real. Just be real. What are you going to say that God didn't know? Nothing. Nothing. If you're hurting and you just need to just, uh, right, let it out, do it. And understand now, of course, we're not going to be disrespectful. We're not going to be blasphemous. But God, I just need to get this off my chest and do it. See, when we properly understand that worship is a sacrifice and it's not about us, then and only then will worship be something that truly fulfills us and brings us joy. We must be willing to die to ourselves in order to live for Jesus. This goes beyond what happens in this room. It mainly plays out in the way that we live and interact in the world, which leads us to the second verse, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think what you have in verse 2 is Paul is explaining in further detail what it means to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. What does it mean? It means this, that you don't conform to the things that this world tells you to conform to. Man, if there was one thing people need to hear, it's this. Here's what I've learned. You will conform to the image of the thing that you worship. If you conform to the image of the things of this world, then it's most likely because those are the things that capture your affections and they are the objects of the things that you worship. I have people, there are people that I know that are more concerned with being like a celebrity than they are being like Jesus. Why? Because that is what they have affection for. That is what they worship. Additionally, if you don't see yourself growing more into the image of Jesus, then it may be because your love, devotion, and worship are not directed at him. Please know this. You cannot follow Jesus and the world at the same time. You may be able to have a foot in both camps for a while, but eventually, hear me, you will have to make a choice. Imagine, it's like I have two lines on the floor. And they start close, and then they kind of spread out as they go. And you're like, all right, I'm going to keep a foot in both camps. And you get to the point where you're like, okay, i got to make a choice here. Because if I keep trying to do this, I'm either going to pull something, or I'm going to fall flat on my face. And i got to make a choice. And this season, this moment in time comes in various moments in all of our lives. But understand something. You will have to come to a point where you will have to choose. What will you do with your life? 
At some point, you will lay yourself down at the altar of something. And you do not want to get later in your life to realize that it was wasted. If you live your life for how many times people laugh at your jokes, you are wasting your life. If you're living your life for how many times people say that you're good at a sport, you're wasting your life. If you're living your life simply for the purpose of getting good grades, you are wasting your life. I will tell you this, when you grasp the beauty of God's mercy towards you in Jesus, then the decision is simple. But I, but I have learned in my life that it is easy to say yes to Jesus. The struggle oftentimes is saying no to myself. I'll kind of close with this. When I married my wife, I gained a lot. I gained a best friend. I gained, like, the world's coolest roommate. I gained someone that holds me accountable. I gained someone that, that is like a helper in my life. I, I gained so much. But here's the thing that I also learned is that when I said yes to the married life, I at the same time said no to the single life. Understand something, guys. You can't be married and continue to act like you're single. What you'll find is a lot of marriages fail because a lot of people don't get that. In particular, men. They want to be married and still live like they're single, and that doesn't work. Likewise, you can't be yoked to Christ and continue to live as if you're not. There's an analogy that I've given a million times. I'm almost done. I'm wrapping up. I've given this analogy a lot. And I hate to do this, but for the sake of time, we're going to skip the last song. Just because. We started a little bit late, so it's not because I'm going long. All right? So don't make the meme out of me, Corbin. Okay? Well, there's, there's, there's an analogy that I've given a million times, and some of you, I, I've, I've almost strayed from saying it because I said it so much. But now I realize I haven't said it in a long time because I've been delaying saying it. But if, I, if, if Encounter starts at 6.30, and I walk in here at 7.57, you guys are like, where are you at? Where, where were you, man? Like, what happened? I'm like, yo, guys, let me tell you what happened, right? I was driving here, and given my luck with vehicles lately, this is not far-fetched. I get a flat tire, and I have to pull over. I got to put the spare tire on, and, and the lug nut fell. It rolled off into the middle of the street, and I go to grab it, and I look up, and an 18-wheeler going 60 miles an hour on 46 just hits me head on, and it just runs over me. I know, crazy. And then I get up, I dust myself off, I grab the thing, I put the tire on. I had to get myself together, so it took a little bit. But then I eventually got here. You would look at me and say that you're a liar. Thank you. Right? You're a liar. There's no way that that's true. And why is that? Because you're, in your mind, you're saying this. There's no way that you can encounter the full force of an 18-wheeler truck going 60 miles an hour head on and then just walk away from it. And likewise, I'll say this. It is impossible for you to tell me that the spirit of the living God dwells within you 24-7 and you do not look any different. I will tell you, it's more possible that I was hit by a truck and walked away unchanged than for you to tell me that you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're unchanged. See, the life of a Christian is a life that is different. We cannot believe the amazing truth of the gospel and not be changed by it. How do we accept this? 
We must die to ourselves. We must be willing to stop trusting in our own efforts and seeking our own passions and live for his glory. I want to close with this quote. In every Christian's heart, there's a cross and there's a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of Caesar. But we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. Now, this may seem to be, this isn't what you wanted to hear, right? This isn't super encouraging, happy-go-lucky, bubblegum and rainbows. Dying to your own desires. However, I will tell you that true joy, true peace, you have not experienced until you have learned to die to yourself. There's not a day that goes by where I regret laying my, my hopes and dreams at the feet of Jesus and taking up what he has for me. Never once have I regretted it. I love how this passage says that our sacrifice to God is holy and acceptable. I don't know about you, but there's nothing really holy and acceptable about me. What we see is that because of what Jesus has done for you and for me, I can present worship to God that is holy and acceptable and perfect in his sight. Not because I am those things, but because he has made me those things through the blood of Jesus. And here's the thing that I love about a passage like this is that it demands a response, guys. It demands a response. Perhaps you're in this room and, and you're the Christian that you've just been coasting by with your life thinking that you can be with Jesus on Monday but not with Jesus on Tuesday or be with Jesus on Wednesday and not be with Jesus on Thursday, or I can give him part of my life, but not all of my life, and you've been deceiving yourself into thinking you have a parachute, but when in reality, if you're honest, you know you have a backpack. Well, here's your chance to do something about it. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Man, what would it look like? There's about 80 students in this room. What would it look like if all 80 of you daily presented your life to God and said, what do you want from me today? I guarantee you it would change the student ministry, it would change this church, and it would impact the city and the nations. If God changed the world with 12 men, what would he do with 80 